My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. David Beckworth. He's got a great podcast himself as well. I'm sure we're going to touch on that. But David, introduce yourself here to the audience. Uh, who are you? How'd you get involved, interested in macro and economics? And what are you doing now? Thank you, Michael. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, and we have a monetary policy program. So the Mercatus Center is a research center that bridges the gap between academic ideas and the policy world. So we have in-house scholars. We also commission a lot of work. We take academic folks and, and turn their ideas into stuff that practical policymakers could use. And in my program in particular, we look at the Federal Reserve, everything from what they do with monetary policy to how they run their shop. So institutional reforms down to the, the actual conduct of monetary policy. I began as an academic and as the uh, career path led me, I ended up in this space here. So this it's a research center, but we do, again, a lot of work related to how to um, improve monetary policy in the U.S. So I think you and I are both aware of the criticism around, you know, the academia side of the world, and then let's call it in quotes, the real world. I'm curious, why is it you think that there's a disconnect in the perception around what the studies show and what's happening in this small sample? Are those criticisms justified in all domains and some domains, or is it just sort of a, a wrong popular narrative? I mean, the, the criticisms about the disconnect between academics and the, the real world in terms of policy. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. One way to look at that is as an academic, you have to really specialize you're trying to publish, you're trying to get tenure, you tend to focus in on a niche area, and that might not make you as accessible to a broader range range of issues. So sometimes it's important to get the big picture, it's, understand, it's important to understand plumbing issues. Here's a good example, I think, is that an, it'd be easy for an academic to, to work through a macroeconomic model, DSGE model, without understanding the plumbing that actually makes that model work in the real world. So you know, how does the Fed operate and conduct monetary policy, big balance sheets, small balance sheets, interest on reserves, whatever approach it takes. Um, sometimes those issues aren't well thought through if you're focusing narrowly on your little area. And that's easy to do. Like all of us, we've got to specialize and focus in, the, in a particular area. But I think sometimes in academia, it's, it's easy to have that. But with that said, there are many, I think, smart and successful people as well. As you mentioned, I've had a podcast, a number of academics who do know this space well. It, it, I think many of them, though, that are successful interact in the policy world and interact in markets. And so they, they have a good balance. I, I guess I would you know, say is probably the better people out there in academia who do engage in this space are folks who are well-read, have engaged with market folks, and um, taken interest in it. And probably also, I would assume, recognize that just the passage of time seems to make things more complex, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve of Today is very different than the Federal Reserve of a decade ago, two decades ago, little 1913. How does the, the evolution of the Federal Reserve factor into what the Fed should be doing? Um, and I say that because, you know, let's face it, the Fed has gotten, you can argue, so complex that maybe they themselves are creating the tail risks that they're trying to counter. So let me ask, let me answer this question in two parts. First, going back to the academics, I, I do think it's, it's hard to keep up with some of these changes. You crack open most textbooks, they, they probably don't have the most current operating system and all the current debates going on. So it, it is an issue to keep up with the changes. But in terms of the Fed being an actual tail risk, I, I do think there is some reason to worry that the Fed has its plate too full of responsibilities and objectives. I mean, the Fed does everything from bank regulation, financial stability to monetary policy. It's now, it's, you know, it's, it also manages the payment system. It's trying to set up 
the process of setting up a, a, a real-time uh, settlement system fed now. Um, it's considering digital currency. There's just a lot. If you imagine Jay Powell, he's got to know a lot of you know information about many different areas. And, and I do think, and there's a lot of smart people who work there, to be clear, and he has a, a very talented staff. But there is a lot that they do. Some countries, you know, they they separate out, for example, um, some places bank regulation is is carved out and given to another federal agency. And and there's always going to be some overlap between you know, bank regulation and what the central bank does. But some places they do try to carve out some of those responsibilities into different agencies. And uh, that, that might be something to look at. I mean, there are there are reasons to be um, open minded to that. I, I would also add, though, Maybe some of this is inevitable, Michael. Um, the Fed does manage the most important currency in the world. Um, there's global funding markets around the world. Dollar-denominated assets are issued around the world. So the Fed does have, even in a world where it was simpler and, and tried to minimize its footprint in the financial system, I still think it would be relatively complicated and large, simply based on the fact that the Fed has a huge mandate that realistically expands beyond the U.S. borders. Do you think that that, that huge mandate, that complexity, that that makes makes things more challenging in terms of speed and maybe seeing sort of, you know, the simplest answer, which is usually the right one. I mean, a lot of people arguably, I think, correctly said, you know, coming out of COVID, they're doing too much. And the Fed was too late to raise rates. I can't imagine that they didn't see the data that everyone else saw. I'm curious how you think about that part of it, because I think part of decision making you know, in a in a important task also relates to all the peripheral things that probably don't have anything to do with the main task. Yeah, in, in the case of falling behind the curve on inflation, I, I think many of us didn't see it coming. Now, some people did, to be fair. Some of our prominent folks, Larry Summers did, Olivia Blanchard, and some others, and, and maybe you did, Michael, too. But if you looked at the consensus forecast, I mean, which are, you know, economists on Wall Street, they did not foresee the inflation surging in 2021. The bond market, if you look at break-evens, they, they didn't see it. So most people, I would say that kind of the consensus view was we were not going to have sustained high inflation when, in fact, we did. And the Fed was also a part of that. Um, so it, there's something that all of us missed. Again, some people saw it. And I, and I think, and, I, and I'm one of those, to be clear. <laughs> I uh, unfortunately made a terrible call in early 2021. I think Part of the issue was simply we were fighting the last war. We're thinking in terms of the previous decade. And um, we learned a very painful lesson that, yes, inflation can go up given enough fiscal stimulus, given enough easy monetary policy. So I I think that's part of it. Uh, I also think the Fed's new framework may have exacerbated the fact that we were thinking in terms of an old view of inflation. And and on, and then add, what add to that simply that this was just unprecedented in terms of you know there were several reasons why inflation took off. One was policy was to accommodate it for too long. The other is that there were some uh, global supply shortages and disruptions that also kind of confounded the story. So I, I do think it was incredibly difficult to look at the data and, and not be misled by the fact that some of that inflation was temporary would go away, which is true but then also be kind of lulled in complacency about the large fiscal stimulus. I think particularly in 2021, um, the you know, $1.9 trillion extra that were added to ARP were, were in hindsight were, was clearly too much. And then the Fed kept rates low for a long time. They continued QT up into early 2022, which again, it makes no sense in retrospect that they did it for so long. 
Um, so again, just to summarize, I, I think, you know, the framework was probably the previous decade, new, um, their thinking, and then the Fed's new framework probably added some fuel to that fire, and that all of us, or many of us, were in that boat. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Let's expand a little bit more on this framework point because I think it was not too long ago, Powell basically alluded to the idea that uh, the Fed is realizing how little they understand about inflation, which was a strange thing. Uh, it was either him or another Fed governor uh, had said. What is that framework now? Because if the argument is that they're relying on things which are not as valid in today's environment, well, you don't really have any historical data to then do backtesting on to know if their existing framework is valid to begin with. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I do think their framework was designed with one world in mind, which is a world of low inflation, low interest rates. Now, it's possible we go back to that world. Um, and, and I think you can make a reasonable argument that we do. So uh, I mentioned Olivier Blanchard. He has a recent piece out. He's from the Peterson Institute, prominent macroeconomist. He has a piece out arguing that we will return to a world of secular stagnation, where all these things that led to low rates and low inflation previous decade, they were with us once we get to the other side. And if that's the case, then their framework makes more sense. But just to be clear, their framework, which is called, you know, flexible average inflation targeting framework, it was designed to respond to a world where inflation was low and 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 the Fed have a, had a hard time hitting its inflation target. Now, why would it care if it was undershooting? Isn't that a good thing to have low inflation? Their concern was they wanted to have enough policy space. So if inflation is too low, then interest rates will go low. Um, and they won't have much room to cut in case of recession. So they wanted to get the average inflation rate to 2%, and they, they started this framework. What this framework did, though, is it added asymmetries to how it does monetary policy. In particular, it would make up for past misses in inflation, but only misses from below. So if it overshot 2%, it was never going to like try to correct for that. It would just simply glide back down. But if it undershoots 2%, then it would make up for that. And then also it had, I think, another big change in the framework is it said that it would respond to shortfalls from maximum employment as opposed to symmetric deviation from above and below. So everything in this framework was geared toward a world where inflation was running too low, and then they would try to make up for it aggressively. They would would keep rates lower for longer, do more QT. And again, that made sense in the previous decade, and maybe it'll make sense going forward. Um, I, I personally think, though, you do need a framework that is more robust to any situation. So this here might not be the best one. I mean, it, it may be improvement over what they had, but I, I do think it, it's not going to be robust to every situation. And then if I can, I would just add also that this, this framework probably is why they, in their statement, if you remember so September 20 to November 2021, I believe, they had a condition for liftoff in their their statement every time the, the uh, meeting was decided. And it said something like labor market conditions have to reach levels consistent with you know, their assessment of maximum employment. And the key thing here, inflation has risen to 2% is on track to moderately exceed it for some time. They stuck for that, th- those terms for a long time. And that led to, I believe, the overshoot, at least in part, 
And that's tied to that framework. So yes, the framework is based on what came in the past. You, some could argue going forward, it will be with us. But I, I would like to see a framework that's a little more robust to different circumstances, different shocks. As I think about it, and Lystia, I mean, I think part of that framework is that it was driven under maybe the assumption that the velocity of money would never really pick up in a sustainable way, which is why they kept rates so low and there's constant money printing to counter number of transactions, right, that ultimately are part of the inflation equation. I mean, you can argue that a good amount of the inflation that we have here is more just because of that activity as opposed to just the pure dollars. Yes, I, I think they didn't expect the velocity to take off. However, I would note that so part of this framework is is this term called makeup policy so they want to make up for past misses and what i would recommend and maybe we'll get to this later is a policy that makes up on both sides so if you overshoot you got to come down as well and correct for that and if you, you know undershoot you do the same thing so you do it on both sides but part of the idea is that if the world if the markets if the public believes the fed is credible and it's going to make up for past misses then the public itself would come to to do the heavy lifting for the Fed. So one of the implicit um, hopes of this framework, at least for the make from below, is that the market, the public would do the heavy lifting. In other words, they, we would expect the Fed to keep you know, rates lower for longer, allow, allow inflation to overshoot, get us back to full employment quicker. And so we would just do, we would spend our money quicker because we anticipated inflation. We would do things that would automatically get us back to that point. So there is actually in this framework some expectation that velocity will change, just that it will be in a manageable sense. It won't be. I, I think what, what in terms of the framing you're using velocity, they expected velocity to kind of self-correct up to the appropriate point. They didn't foresee it overshooting beyond what was necessary to get back to two percent inflation. And and I think again that's it, it was a very confusing time. Um, Again, a lot of supply shock, inflation from other sources, as well as, again, the Fed may not being, the Fed not being as worried as it should have been given the past decade. Uh, I have a, a friend, Josh Henderson, who wrote a piece for us, and he said, if you just done a naive forecasting model where you look just at a really simple, naive forecasting model using, he looked at Divisia M2. So Divisia is a kind of more sophisticated measure of, of money. It, it weights money assets according to the liquidity. But nonetheless, he, he knows you would have seen, um, you would have had another indicator that inflation was coming. Um, the BIS, Bank for International Settlements, recently came out with a piece making this point as well. Uh, but but again, I, I, would, I would just caution us that, yes, that would have been another data point, and it would have maybe given us some humility. But if we look, you know, again, the previous decade or, or several decades, the relationship between money and inflation wasn't very strong. So it, I know it convinced some people, but just looking at money may or may not have made much difference depending on someone's persuasion. And, and, I, and I'm somebody who thinks money does matter. It is consequential. I think it's useful to look at, at quantities as well as looking at things like output gaps and, and interest rates. But I, I think there was... Um, Again, there was a the profession at writ large, which is central bankers, academics, policymakers. Most of them don't think in terms of money or quantities of money anymore. And maybe just a quick history on that. So, you know, the Fed at one point did have in its mandate it has to track M1 or M2. It did think about it. But in, in the 80s, this consensus emerged in the literature and in central banks that 
money is not a good guide to where inflation is going to go. There was a breakdown in the relationship between money and inflation. And, and I think um, that, you know, that, that understanding has led us to the place where we are. There are people who've argued against that consensus. Um, you know, some people would argue they're using the wrong measure of money. This person, Josh Henderson, I just mentioned, he says if we use Divisia and there's others like him. Um, th- there's another argument why money and, and inflation has not had a robust relationship past 20, 30 years. And one of them is that because the Fed started doing a much better job. So, so imagine a world, let's think in terms of money here, like as you suggested. Imagine there's a money demand shock, which could push prices in one direction or the other. If the Fed were to perfectly offset every money demand shock by adjusting the money supply, you would never see a relationship between money supply and inflation. You, in other words, the Fed would keep inflation stable, but it would be adjusting money supply in, in response to money demand. That's another interpretation. The Fed got so good at what it was doing, the relationship between money and inflation broke down. In any event, whether it's a measurement issue, whether it's an identification issue, uh, the profession writ large does not look at money as a way to think about inflation. Uh, maybe it will be some more reconsiderations after this experience. It will be interesting to wait and see on that issue. Chair Powell had a speech at Jackson Hole, I believe, 2018. Uh, 2018, I believe, maybe 2017, where he talked about um, navigating by the stars, one of the terms in this paper, navigating by the stars. And the stars in, in macroeconomics, mainstream macroeconomics, there are some macroeconomists who never have bought into this, but the stars would be things such as the natural rate of unemployment. That would be U star. And you think of an equation, you put a U for unemployment, U star would be the, the star which you navigate to what is full employment. Um, or the natural rate of unemployment. There's also a Y star, which would be potential world GDP. What's the sustainable speed limit? Um, and then there's R star, which would be the real interest rate that that brings the economy into equilibrium. And those are all important pieces to understanding where the economy is when you're using kind of a a workhorse mainstream macro model. And that would be the new Keynesian model. Um, it's it's a if you go to graduate school and get a PhD in economics. You probably will see this. And then if you become a central banker, you definitely will, will use it and see it. But th- these models, in order to interpret what's going on, you got to have some estimate of what is the equilibrium real interest rate, R star, for example. And unfortunately, we don't see these star variables directly. They have to be inferred or estimated. And there's people who do that. There's studies that do this. Um, but we really don't know, for example, what is the true sustainable rate of unemployment. Now, right now, it's at 3.5%. Well, excuse me, the actual rate at three and a half percent. And the Fed, for example, thinks that it, it's, it's closer to four percent, that, that we need to actually have an increase in the, un, the amount of unemployment. Um, in fact, you know, the Fed has it going up to four point six percent next year temporarily and coming back down to four. So we, we don't just don't know what what are the these key real variables that kind of anchor the economy. And so Chair Powell in this speech said, look, these things, not only can we not see them, but even if we could see them, they're moving around. Um, you know, the, the, the Fed's estimate of what U-Star was drifted down in the, you know, the decade leading up, well, from the Great Recession up to the present. And his point is, this is not a very effective way to, to, do, mo- to do a monetary policy. So, yes, the, he, he did talk about let's rely less on these unobserved variables, which also means let's rely less on things like Phillips Curve. A Phillips Curve is a, a very important framework. Um, I'm sure most of you know that there's a trade-off between inflation and slack in the economy, often unemployment. 
Um, and so you would rely less on measures that, that have to be estimated. And, and it would push the Fed more towards seeing the whites of the eyes of inflation. That's what uh, Powell was looking for at that time. Um, so he definitely was pushing for that. However, you know, we are back at a place where now that they, they are back interested in those models. Um, and I, I would suspect they never really gave them up. So uh, and I, I don't think those models will ever go away. And I would argue that all of us have some model in our mind. When we're thinking of the macro economy, there's some model, whether it's implicit or explicit, whether it's a new Keynesian model, whether in the previous uh, speaker, it's a monetarist model, there's a fiscal theory, the price level model. And let me just, if I can, let me just quickly note, whatever model you use for the macro economy, so imagine you're Chair Powell, and you've got to rely on a model to guide your decisions. Any model you can come up with is going to depend on some variable that you can't directly observe. So let's go back to the monetarist model as an example. If you, would, if you want to look at the monetarist model, so for example, we talked about how M2 grew rapidly. And we could have looked at M2 growth and said, aha, inflation. But here's the thing. What if, and this did not happen, but what if real money demand grew rapidly? So what, in other words, what if we expanded the money supply rapidly, but households and businesses wanted just to hoard that money? There wouldn't have been any inflation. So in order to do a good monetarist model, you've got to know what's going to happen to real money demand. We don't directly observe that. If you're a new Keynesian model, you got to know what's the natural rate of unemployment. We don't directly observe that. If you're someone like who, who promotes the fiscal theory to price level, you got to know what, and, and I can explain this later if you're really interested, but you got to know what is the discounted present value of real primary surpluses. Th these are things that we just don't directly observe. So even a simple macro model requires some reliance on some unknown. So I don't think we can just throw a model out and, and, and assume our problem is solved. There will always be a need for some model with some uncertainty of surrounding the model. Finally, uh, Larry Summers, I, I did not see that he suggests a rules-based approach, but I'm definitely sympathetic to a more rules-based, predictable approach. It's part of our, pro, part of our emphasis at, at our monetary policy, monetary policy program at Mercatus is to focus on a more predictable, systematic approach. Now, we can have a big debate over what the proper rule is. And, and to be clear, a rule, it could be a systematic reaction function. So you, you, the Fed would still have flexibility, but it would do it in a predictable way. I'm an advocate of nominal GDP level targeting in, in a systematic fashion. And if someone, if you guys are interested, I'll be happy to go into it. But let me stop there because I've gone on long enough. Yeah, and I'm, by the way, I'm a dog person uh, myself because I think that was what was going on. I apologize. No, 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 it's okay. It's all the good. FedEx, the FedEx truck drove up. I was like, oh, here we go. So rather <laughs> throw her in the laundry room. So yeah, no, all good, all good. All right, let, let, let's go with this. So, so this nominal GDP target idea. Sure. Um, you had sent me a DM saying, you know, the next policy framework uh, meeting or whatever it would be that's coming up, that's going to be sort of a major focus. A outline the the pros, the cons there. Um, and isn't that what the Fed kind of already tries to do anyway? No, actually, there. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. 
well, let me step back. Effectively, what they may produce as an outcome might be similar to a nominal GDP level target, but what they're directly targeting is 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 not. So the Fed targets inflation two percent with with makeup again, now at least makeup from below. Think of it this way: there's there's two things the Fed could target. A real simple illustration: the Fed could try to target the price level or some rate of change in prices, which is what most central banks do. And that's a nominal measure. So we we say, kind of like in, in mainstream macro, we say there's this, this classical dichotomy that there's these real variables that emerge based on underlying you know, productivity, the fundamentals of the economy. And the central bank, in our case, the Fed has no control, meaningful long-run control over the real variables in the economy. However, the Fed can control nominal variables, variables that are priced in dollars because the Fed ultimately controls you know amount of money being created, the amount of spending. And so the Fed should target some nominal variable over the long run. Now, to be clear, the Fed can influence real variables in the short run, but over the long run, it only affects stuff that's denominated in dollars. So one simple thing is target the price level itself. Um, what, what I advocate is targeting total dollar spending in the economy, which is a nominal measure. And nominal GDP is, is basically the dollar value of final goods and services sold. There's other versions of this. You could target the dollar value of final domestic sales. Nonetheless, the basic idea is you want to, you want the Fed to target over the medium run. So year to month, quarter to quarter, you don't get too worked up, but over the medium run, you want the Fed to target a stable growth path for the dollar size of the economy. So you're growing the economy that the total dollar spending on a stable path. And why, why do that? I would say one of the key, there's multiple reasons, but one of the key things is it, it, it acknowledges the Fed's ignorance, our ignorance about the underlying fundamentals. So if you're targeting inflation, as I mentioned earlier, there's two key things we can, two shocks, and there, there's it simplifies things, but think of two shocks that affect inflation. There's demand, so too much spending, you know, fiscal policy, monetary policy, so we can have that. Or there could be supply disturbances. So, you know, the global pandemic, ships, uh, you know, ships and, and production, factories, health, and the number of people in the labor force fall out. Those are supply disturbances. And those are things the Fed really can't meaningfully help. I mean, the Fed's not going to bring more people back to work who've retired. The Fed's not going to solve, you know, fact, factory shuts down in China. But the Fed can influence the amount of dollars being spent in the economy, total spending. When you have, if you do inflation targeting, and, I, and again, I think this is well illustrated over the past few years, inflation could go up for two reasons. It could go up because of uh, policy has overheated too many dollars, chasing too few goods, excess aggregate demand, or it could inflation could go up because there's a shortage, temporary shortage. And the central bank, the Fed, can only meaningfully address the former, the, the aggregate demand. But how do you know when you're looking at inflation in real time? How do you know what part of that is due to spending? How part is due to uh, supply shortages? And we don't. We simply don't. There's there's a knowledge problem there. So instead of trying to divine that and, and play God, kind of step back and say, look, what we can control is total dollar spending, and we're going to keep that growing at a stable growth rate, and let the chips fall where they may. So if let's let's say we're growing. Um, the dollar size of the economy at four to five percent. Historically, that's what we did. Let's just say five percent. Keep this easy. Well, if, if real GDP is growing at three percent, then that means that will give us two percent inflation. So the inflation rate and real GDP growth rate kind of add up to nominal. Um, but we we don't. The thing is, we don't need to know that in real time. All we need to do is keep nominal GDP growing at a stable growth path. And then, if there's a real shock, let's say we have a pandemic, 
Well, that's going to push inflation. Inflation could go to 4%, real growth could go down to 1%. Or if there's a, something great, productivity, AI takes over the world, then real GDP grows to 4% and inflation drops to 1%. So nominal GDP targeting, one very basic reason for it is it, it, it simplifies the life of the Fed. I think it makes rule-based approach easier. Um, it, we don't have to try to figure out what part of inflation is driven by these, these different sources. Uh, there's some other financial stability arguments for it as well. In terms of financial contracts are in dollars, a lot of fixed nominal debt contracts. Uh, we can also tell a, a zero lower bound argument, but that would apply to a price level target as well. But I'd say at the very basic level, keep it simple. And that's what nominal GDP targeting does. Speaking of um, things which are not simple, uh, I feel like we should address the balance sheet for a bit here, because that's often in, in the FinTwit space talked about a lot. You get all these charts showing how much the Fed has lost on the on the balance sheet with inflation. Um, what do people get wrong about the Fed's balance sheet? And do you think it's going to be uh, at some point problematic or is it now just going to be an accepted tool that the Fed uses? Well, I, I think it's an accepted tool for now. Um, and, and I think probably most of our listeners already know much of the data on the Fed's balance sheet. 8.9's come down to about 8.9. Or trillion, it's, it's huge. You know, the Fed has um, on the liability side of its balance sheet. Um, a couple of comments I'll make: uh, the Fed has bank reserves and it has um, funds parked in the overnight reverse repo facility, and those are the big parts, the, the huge, the important part of the Fed's liability side. And I would bring up two again, two observations that I think will become more important going forward. Um, the second one, probably more important than the first one. But the first one I would say is, you know, the Fed is managing just over $5 trillion between the reserves and then overnight reverse repo facilities. The Fed is managing $5 trillion worth of government debt. So think, think of the Fed liability, ultimately, is the U.S. government liability. And, and if you think also of the total debt stock we have, so I don't, I'm, I'm going to throw about 20, I think it's 24 trillion. I know there's a 30 trillion number, but that includes a lot of intergovernmental liabilities themselves, so that the debt the government actually owes, you know, about 20% of it is managed by the Fed, and I find that problematic. The Fed is ne was never intended to be the public debt manager. It, it affects the duration, um, and it, it really has a bearing on, on how we finance our debt. So there's arguments for QE, but I, one thing that I, I do find troubling is that the Fed does manage a, a sizable portion of our public debt effectively. It didn't mean to, but that's where we are. But let me go back to the losses. I think the bigger issue here. So the Fed is experiencing losses. And um, my friend Andy Levin, who used to be a senior Fed staffer, now is at Dartmouth, and Bill Nelson, another former senior Fed staffer, works at the Bank Policy Institute. They have an MBER working paper, a Hoover working paper. We turned it into a, a policy brief at Mercatus, and they show that the Fed is likely to lose about $1 trillion over the next decade, just shy of $1 trillion. So the next five years, they'll be sending zero remittances back to the Treasury, and after that, very limited amount. And they would have sent roughly $100 billion a year. So those are funds flowing to Treasury that you know would have had, had a real bearing on deficits, on paying the debt. Just right now, in fact, you know, it would have extended the potential default date on our debt ceiling crisis had they been doing that. And I, I do think it's an issue. And, and the, again, we can argue QE has benefits. But if we look, go back to the case of QE that we did in this most recent event, so I, I'm all for QE in, when we have markets collapse. So, you know, March and April of 2020. But once you get beyond that, you know, you get into late 20, early 2021, it's harder to justify why they kept doing the large scale asset purchases all the way through early 2022. 
they're just it's, it's in, especially in retrospect looking at housing for example buying up all those those um bonds and and just the, the signal is sending it's it's harder to understand and and what andy levin and bill nelson argue is all most of the oomph we got from qe and, and the fed buying of securities was accomplished in march and maybe april everything after that there wasn't a whole lot of bang for your buck in terms of the dollar spent, number one. And number two, it's now very costly. So when the, when the Fed buys up all these securities, it's, as you know, Michael, they bought up a bunch of low-yielding treasury bonds, so 1% less or, or less in interest. And so now those those are sitting on the Fed's balance sheet, and those are the assets in which it earns, you know, earning 1% on that on the asset side. But then on the liability side, I just described the overnight reverse repo facility, the, the reserves. They're overnight rates and they've shot up, right? Close to 5%. So they're losing, they're, they're, their net income is negative and they will continue to do so until the balance sheet, it's, as big as it is, it's going to take a long time to really, even with QT, it's going to take a long time to get that back in balance. And that's why there's, there's going to be a loss. And so what I'm saying is you, we could have done QE when it was very effective and we could have stopped sooner. And the fact that we aren't, you know, we're going to lose close to a, tr- a trillion dollars. And some of that was unnecessary. And that's th- those are real resources that taxpayers have to themselves cough up and pay. And I, I think this is a big deal. It's, it's, it hasn't been on the radar, but I think it's increasingly going to be so. I'll, I'll just say this. We, we've been taking we've been presenting this to people on Capitol Hill and this had a really big reception. And it's, it's not just a problem in the U.S. It's something that's going on around the world. Probably the, the, the central bank with the biggest losses right now is the Swiss National Bank. They have a huge balance sheet relative to the size of their economy. But it's happening everywhere, Canada, England. In fact, the Bank of England, they, they, the Treasury or the finance ministry is actually sending money to the Bank of England. So it, it's, it's effectively doing the same thing the Fed and the UR Treasury is doing, but it's being more explicit. They're saying, look, you're taking a loss. We're going to send some money to you to get your house in order so that you know, won't be losing money going forward. Um, Eurozone, all the major central banks are losing money. And, there, and there's an article, I'll just, just mention this briefly, in Politico that came out in December, and if we updated it, the picture's only gotten worse, but it says, fallen heroes, central banks face credibility crisis as losses pile up. And they walk through all the advanced economy central banks, and most of them are experiencing losses. So I, I think in 50 years from now, we look back, we'll see big balance sheets and QE and, and, and this, what we call a floor operating system. Those are things that worked really well, or at least apparently worked well in a low interest rate environment. But once you get into higher interest rate environments, big balance sheets and rising interest rates lead to huge fiscal costs for taxpayers. And I think that's going to be contested. It's going to be contested because um, it's a decision, you know, who decided the Fed could lose a a trillion dollars? I mean, Congress didn't debate over this. Um, I I also think it's just bad optics. It's going to create, you know, public blowback. It's 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 great fuel for populism because who's... Now, why isn't the Fed sending $100 billion a year to the Treasury? Because it's got to pay that to the banks. Well, the big, bad banks, that doesn't look good. You can imagine where that can go. The other thing is that it, it, it just it potentially impairs the Fed's independence going forward. So you can't trust the Fed. Um, and, and the Fed has this big balance sheet. It's also a tempting target for politicians to use for other purposes. So I do think going forward, so, so to answer your question, yes, it, it has become like the norm. But I think this experience of high rates, if, if high rates stick with us, I do think it's going to be probably harder to use it going forward. However, if we go back to a low interest rate world, which is, I think, equally plausible, then we'll be back to using big balance sheets. I, I'm curious, just as a, as a continuation of that 
point you just made, David, you think it's possible to go back to low rates. Um, that's a very unpopular <laughs> opinion. The thing you always hear on Twitter and in financial media is higher for longer, higher for longer. Uh, you know, nobody ever quite defines how long longer is. Lay out the scenario that, that could get us back to sort of maybe not quite zero interest rate policy, but just lower rates in yeah. general. I mean, the I, I'm, I'm, I t- and, and I'll preface this by saying I tend to be more of a deflationist. I mean, I believe that debt is inherently, you know, debt is deflationary and can't, uh, until you, uh, when you can't issue more of it, right? So you have to keep on rolling over debt for it to not be deflationary. The moment you can't, that's when it, it becomes a problem. It, it seems hard to imagine a scenario where you have the permanent death of the bond market because rates keep rising unless you have the permanent death of government spending. Which also keeps rising. Well, that, actually, that's a good prompt there. So, I would I would just note this. There's a paper. I'll, I'll give it to Michael. I forget the name, but this this historian, the Bank of England, he has shown that rates have been going down for like three, four hundred years. It's been a downward trajectory. So, this might be viewed as just a blip. But but that's that's just empirical. What what's the theory? I, I think the theory is there's there's things that happen in the global economy are continuing to happen at pace that put downward pressure on rates, and particularly the aging of the planet. So dem- the demographic argument is is the planet ages, people live longer, they got to save more for retirement, number one, and they you know want to go into safer assets on the margin um, you know as they get older, bonds, particularly treasury bonds or safe government bonds. So that's one thing, more savings moving forward. Uh, number two is just you know an aging planet gets more risk averse, um, and that's also going to increase the appetite for safer assets. And so if, if anything, it looks like our demographic problem worsened over the past few years. We don't, for example, labor force participation isn't what it was because largely people have retired early. And, and, and look at the big China. China is huge demographic challenge movement. It's starting to lose. Its population is shrinking. Look at Japan. Japan's a good example. Japan, you know, loses about 500,000 people a year in absolute terms. It has a demographic. So the demographic, I think, story is the biggest one that's going to lead to lower rates. That's, that's, that's one of the stories. The other story is all the increased regulation that's come out of the you know, 2008 period, great financial crisis. So Dodd-Frank, um, Basel III, these all require financial banks in particular to hold high-quality liquid assets, HQLA or safe assets. That's increased demand. And then I think you could also tell the story that people, they tend to frame their, their world around experiences they've been through. So think of millennials, just as an example. They lived through, they, they came of age in the Great Recession, now they came through the pandemic recession. On the margin, they're going to be a little more risk averse. And in our society, I'd say our society as a whole is risk. It's hard to, to be bold and adventuresome in, some, in many places. You know, it's, it's hard to get sufficient housing built in the U.S. because of risk aversion. The wealthier we get, we tend to get more risk averse. And so I think all these things will lead to downward pressure. The, the argument is will lead to downward pressure. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. And I, I think this, you know, this to circle back, Michael, to like our debt ceiling discussion, I, well, we didn't talk about that, but the, the circling to the debt ceiling discussion, I mean, the key issue is the amount of spending the U.S. government does and, and how do you manage that. And I think it will always be a problem for the U.S. government as long as it has low financing costs. It's, it's hard to be disciplined if there's no real budget concern. If you can roll over your debt, at a relatively low interest rate. I mean, there is some point where you, you, you can't, but if you have cheap financing costs, you can roll it over, then this is going to be a struggle. The debt ceiling is a symptom of a deeper problem, and that is how do we put U.S. government spending on a sustainable path? And I think low interest rates in the future is going to make this problem more pronounced if indeed they come. 
I think that's a good place to wrap this space up, given that I've got another one coming up. Everyone, again, please make sure you follow David Beckworth. Check out his podcast. Again, this will be an edited conversation on all your favorite platforms under that League Lag Live banner. Thank you, David. Really do appreciate your knowledge and uh, appreciate that we get this going despite the technical difficulties at the start here. And thank you, as always, to FCF, Dylan, and everybody else that joins and participates. <laughs> Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.